All right, well, good evening, everybody. How are we feeling this Sunday night? <laughs> it's good to see all of you in the room. Thank you for spending part of your 4th of July weekend with us. And all of you joining us online, we hope that you are, uh, you know, putting some extra brats on the grill and just basking in the afterglow on the 5th of July. Now, uh, we're glad that you can join us on YouTube, Facebook, or on our website. Glad that you're still doing that. Uh, and thank you again for all of you coming in the room tonight. We're so grateful to see you. Uh, I had forgotten just how good it is to hear people singing. So I just want to encourage you, sing louder next time, okay? Like at the end of the service, when we do the doxology, like sing even louder. And I don't mind the hooping and hollering because we just missed it all, you know? So if you want to shout a little louder, you can do that. Uh, and even, yeah, there you go. Thank you. Ken, I know you got me, ma'am. Uh, and anyone here tonight, I know we've been doing this for a few weeks, but anyone here in the room, this is your first weekend back to a public gathering, church service, anyone like that in the room? Raise your hands. Yeah, a few in the back. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Come on, give them a hand. We're glad you're here. Wonderful. Well, pray with me as you open up the book of James to James chapter 4, and then pray with me as we begin to look at the scriptures tonight. So Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the way that you call to us, we ask that as we open the scriptures tonight, you would open up our hearts. You would open our minds and our eyes and our ears to hear, to see, to understand, and to believe. We surrender to you even now, Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. If you're in the room and you're under 35, you may not know this. But 20 years ago, if you wanted to watch a movie on a Friday night, you would get in your car and you would drive over to this store called Blockbuster. Anybody used to have a Blockbuster card? Come on, somebody, there you go. And you would drive to Blockbuster and you would browse the shelves and you'd say, I don't know, what should I get? And maybe I'm into something action or maybe a romantic comedy. Blockbuster was the sort of video and game rental Giant, But there was this little upstart company that had begun in 1998. So 20 years ago, this company was two years in. And it was this little company called Netflix. And Netflix started this kind of different approach to movie rentals and game rentals. They said, if you pay us a little monthly subscription, I think it was like, what, $5.99 or maybe it was $7.99 and just under eight bucks, whatever. If you paid them this monthly thing, you could choose, wait for it, any movie you wanted and they would mail it to you. That's right, I said mail it to you. Not like an email with a download code. No, I mean, they would mail you a DVD. Come on, somebody in the room, do you remember this? They would mail you a little white sleeve thing and you'd put the, you got your DVD in that. And Netflix had about 300,000 subscribers in the year 2000. Blockbuster, on the other hand, had millions of customers and billions of dollars of revenue. Millions of customers, billions of dollars of revenue. And there was a time in the year 2000 where the Netflix CEO approached the Blockbuster CEO. And some of you who are real business savvy, you read all the magazines and ink dot whatever magazine and stuff like that. You're like, oh, I know this story. And he approached the Blockbuster CEO, John Antiaco, and he said, would you like to buy our little mail-in DVD company called Netflix? 
And he said, well, how much do you want for it? He said, I'll give you 50, I'll take 50 million for this. Not 50 million, it's no small chump change. I mean, that's, that's still a lot of money. Blockbuster was loaded and Blockbuster said, yeah, I don't think we want to do that. I don't think that's a good investment. It's probably not where the future of video is going. Sounds funny to say it now, because there are no blockbusters anymore. But meanwhile, Netflix has over 180 million subscribers, and wait for it, $194 billion is what the company is worth. That's crazy town. And you think about this and you're like, man, wow, what an epic miss, what a mistake. But the truth is, we could all look back at different moments and say, if only we had known. The problem with life is none of us can predict the future. And worse yet, none of us can control it. We don't know what's really coming around the corner. And maybe one of the reasons why the pandemic has been so disruptive is because we've been lulled by our comfort and our convenience into thinking that we're actually in control. And so, so often the stuff that makes our life more convenient or more comfortable, the stuff that, that makes life work better and go better kind of tricks us into thinking that we're in control of our lives, that we can script this, that we can predict things, that we can make sure that certain outcomes happen. And then nothing like a global pandemic to shake us of those illusions. <laughs> nothing like a pandemic to all of a sudden put all of our businesses on hold Jobs get furloughed, economy starts nosediving. Other times, maybe we put such a high premium on freedom, and there's a lot of discussion about what we need, especially in you know, Fourth of July weekend, our freedom. But we sometimes make this critical mistake of confusing permission with power. We think that if only I had permission, I could do these things because I have the power to do these things, and really the only thing I'm missing is permission, freedom. I just, I, I already have the ability to do it, I just need permission or freedom to do it. But one of the things that life has a way of knocking into us is that actually even if we had the freedom, we don't always have the power. Even if we had the permission, we don't always have the power to keep ourselves safe or secure or successful. James this evening has something to say to us about that. We're going to look at James chapter 4 and talk about plans, presumption, and the providence of God. Plans, presumption, and the providence of God. If you've got your Bible or your phone or Bible app, just turn with me to James chapter 4 verse 13. If you don't, that's fine. You can follow along on the screen. And James, if you've been paying attention in this series, you know that James does not mince his words. This guy is coming for us. He's not content to be a sweet, you know, little country pastor who just says nice things. This guy is coming in hot. And in James chapter 4, verse 13, he says, pay attention. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and we will stay there a year buying and selling and making profits. And then James says, you don't really know about tomorrow. <laughs> you don't really know about tomorrow. What is your life? Tell me, James. James, the motivational speaker, likely to pack out arenas, 50,000 bucks a pop. What is your life? Tell me, James. It's a mist. 
A mist that appears for only a short while before it vanishes. We've said to you that James is, is writing in the vein of something called wisdom literature. And if you've read different parts of the Bible, you recognize wisdom literature in the Proverbs. You recognize it in the teachings of Jesus, particularly in Matthew's gospel, but you also recognize it in books such as Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the book that maybe when you're feeling particularly cynical about life, it's a good one to speak to you because the teacher keeps saying everything is meaningless, except that he's not saying it's meaningless. He's saying it's a vapor. It's a mist. And so when James says, what is your life? It's a mist that appears for only a short while and then it vanishes. James is saying, your life is brief. It's quick. It's fragile. In fact, the point that James is trying to make, number one, is that nothing is a given. Nothing is a given about our life. When you hear those opening words, do not say tomorrow we're going to go and sell and tomorrow we're going to do, you might think James is against business. Oh no, James is anti-business. He's not anti-business. Remember that James is the half-brother of Jesus. James's father was a carpenter named Joseph. It's very likely that James, as a young man, grew up learning the family trade, probably had calluses on his hands. James knows the wisdom tradition of the Proverbs that say, go to the ant, you sluggard, and figure out how to work. (laughs) James isn't against industry or diligence or hard work, but James wants us to know that nothing is a given, that life is more fragile than we realize. In reminding us that nothing is a given, James is reminding us that there is a difference between planning and presumption. There is a difference between planning and presumption. It's great to plan. It's great to be intentional. It's great to live on purpose. It's great to have uh, an, an idea of where things are headed. In fact, one of the Proverbs says, look, this is about storing up for the winter. It's good to be mindful of what season will follow this season and so what you should use this season for. My father-in-law is a farmer and I'll never forget as a young married man going over the farm and him explaining to me when you do certain chores and sometimes it doesn't make sense like stocking up firewood when it's hot outside in the summer. But he's like, well, you gotta store this, stock this up now or you won't have it in the winter. There's a difference between planning and presumption. James, in telling us that life is like a vapor or a mist, is telling us that that, that nothing is a given. I mean, we don't need a reminder of that, right? I mean, think back to January. What were your hopes for 2020? (laughs) Whatever they were, it was probably not this. It was probably not You didn't envision your spring semester of school being this way. I talked to a young lady this morning who graduated from college, and she's like, it was kind of weird. I graduated at home, you know. Some of you didn't plan on weddings taking place this way. Some of you didn't plan on uh, uh, vacations being canceled. Some of you didn't plan on being unemployed right about now. Nothing is a given. But then James goes on, and in verse 15, he says, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
If the Lord lives, uh, wills, we will live and do this or that. But now you boast and brag and all such boasting is evil. I love that the example that James gives first. If the Lord wills, what James? What extraordinary life ambition are you going to use in your example? If the Lord wills, I'll be super rich. If the Lord wills, I'll meet the spouse of my dreams. If the Lord wills, I'll get that promotion. Like, James, what's the out of reach dream you're going to name? And he says, if the Lord wills, we will live. Like, pretty basic, aren't you, James? Just bringing it down to that common denominator. I mean, can you imagine, your parents in the room, you got kids. Kids love to brag about uh, the, the simplest things. The first time your kid walks, they're like, I'm walking. And you're like, yeah, this is amazing. Then as they get a little older, it starts to get a bit more annoying. Like, I can do that. I can do that better than you. And slowly (laughs) in life, you kind of realize, you know, there's no point bragging about something that you're not responsible for. And James is like, you're going to brag about stuff that you're doing when actually your very life is a gift. When your breath is, can you imagine how ludicrous it would be to wake up in the morning, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, and you're like, I'm breathing, Woo! I'm breathing, I am the best breather, boom. Like that, it's like, bro, like that, like what? It doesn't make any sense. Life is not like that. And James says, life is a gift, breath is a gift. And then he says, all such boasting is evil. What, what, what's he talking about? Evil begins with believing that we are the source of everything we need. Evil begins, why does James say all boasting is evil? You're like, it's a bit strong, James, like evil. I mean, maybe it's bad manners, maybe it's annoying, maybe it's, why would you say boasting is evil? Such boasting is evil because James knows that the root of evil, the beginning of evil is the belief that we already are everything that we need. This is how it begins in Genesis. God doesn't want you to depend on him or God doesn't want you to be like him. He wants you just to be dependent on him. But you can declare independence from God if you just eat this fruit. You don't really want to live in a position where you depend on someone to give you stuff. Why don't you? you You've got everything you need. But James rebukes us by reminding this, number two, that everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. Nothing is a given. That doesn't mean life is an empty, meaningless, nihilistic existence. No, 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 James says, no, there is good. There is joy. There is beauty. But you have to recognize that it's a gift. That it's a gift. Everything good here is a gift. In fact, If boasting is how evil begins, then boasting ends when gratitude begins. Boasting ends where gratitude begins. If the boast that leads us into this sort of evil way begins by saying, I've got what I need, I can do it. In fact, you notice that in James' example, there's a whole lot of we will go, we will do, we will buy, we will sell. And James is like, it's a whole lot of you in this story. But when you switch the posture and you switch the sentence around, you say, well, if the Lord wills this, and if the Lord wants this, and if the Lord 
is involved in this. Boasting ends where gratitude begins. The antidote to boasting is gratitude. But the question before us is, to whom are we giving thanks? To whom are we directing this gratitude? The English writer decades ago, G.K. Chesterton, said the worst moment, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Worst moment, when you're just, I just feel so thankful, so amazing, I'm just so great, what a what wonderful weather, what a beautiful hike, what an incredible lake, what a gorgeous sunset. Thank you to the universe. Thank, where is this directed to? You see, when James says, if the Lord wills, this is an interesting one. I grew up in Malaysia, which is primarily a Muslim country, and Muslims will say this phrase, inshallah which means if Allah wills. And so at first blush, when you read this verse, if the Lord wills, you're like, oh my gosh, James is like a Muslim. No, he's not, obviously. But what's going on here is the key word that James uses in this sentence. He doesn't generically say, if God wills, some cosmic sovereign over the sky who arbitrarily sends lightning bolts or sunsets. Blessings or cursings. In Islam, all you have is a God that is 100% sovereign, and that's about all you can count on. But in the Old Testament, the picture even becomes clearer. Moses sees God as the Lord, the Lord abounding in mercy, compassion. James uses this word Lord, which is the, the word used when they're trying to refer to Yahweh, when they're trying to refer to the great covenant God. And so James isn't saying, if God wills, like inshallah, or sort of the secular you know, version, whatever will be, will be. James is saying, if the Lord, the one who has revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, the God who called Moses, the God who called Israel out of Egypt and rescued them, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the God who calls us from darkness into light, this God is the God that you're entrusting your life and your future to. Not a generic sovereign, not a cold sort of capricious deity that you're like, I don't know, if God, lowercase g, wills. He says, no, if the Lord. His name, Yahweh, the Lord, and it echoes back in James 1.17, where earlier in the letter, James has already told us every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. These gifts come from the Father, the creator of heavenly lights, in whose character there is no change at all. If everything is a gift, everything good is a gift, then we recognize that we can trust the goodness of the giver. Verse 17, James ends this section with a very strange verse. He says, it is a sin when someone knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. And you're like, James, I just don't know if like, you're losing it, man. Because you're going on this angry rants and just like, now you're throwing in a random verse. Like, what is this even about? You know what James is talking about? He's talking about what Christians have called for centuries the sins of omission. 
So on the one hand, he's saying, don't be presumptuous and say that we're going to do whatever we want to do. But now he's saying, if you know something that's right and you don't do it, you fail to do it. This is why in our prayer confession every week we say, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. If you've ever wondered, that's such a weird way to confess. Why not say, God, I lost my temper. God, I did this. God, Because he's saying, well, we, we don't want the laundry list here. The idea is there is this thing that we were called to do. We were called to live in this ultimate, beautiful vocation, this wonderful, fully human life of being alive to God and being open and loving to one another. And when we fall short of that, that's what sin is. And so thirdly here, James wants us to know not only that nothing is a given and everything good is a gift, but that we can offer every moment to the Lord in worship and in service. We can offer every moment to the Lord in worship and service. See, what's interesting about the, the, the person who says, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to buy, I'm going to sell, I'm going to do this, and these are my plans, and this is how I'm going to take over. The problem was not the planning, the problem was the presumption but James says the opposite of presumption is not passiveness. See, this is what we get wrong sometimes is we think, well, okay, well, I don't want to be presumptuous, so I'll just wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. I'm just going to sit still, wait for the moment. Oh, well, I guess it never happened. I guess I'm not sure what my life's really supposed to be about. And we think that either the world is full of the, you know, the, the people who hustle and are hungry and know how to get up and grind and get, get after it, or the people who, you know, those lazy Christians who just trust the Lord, brother, just trust in the Lord. Not sure what I'm going to do for a job, but just trust in the Lord. James adds this last line here, verse 17, to tell us that the opposite of presumption is not passivity. The opposite of presumption is actively participating in God's work. Actively participating in God's work. See, the sin of presumption is saying, God, these are my plans. Would you bless it? Are you on board? Yes or no? Put your signature right here. But the opposite is to say, well, let's flip that. God, you're already at work in the world. God, you're already up to something in the midst of COVID-19. God, you're already in the midst of something. You're up to something in my family, in my friendships, in my neighborhood, in my community. You're already doing stuff. So God, I'm not interested in asking you to put a stamp on my plans. I'm interested in asking you to draw me up into your work. Don't, ask, don't just ask God to bless your plans, but also ask him how you can join his work. God, how can I join your work? If on the one hand, presumption, keep that up for a moment. If on the one hand, presumption looks like saying, we will go, we will buy, we will sell, we will do these things, then the opposite, participation in God's word looks like waking up every morning and saying, God, God, there's these things I, I believe you've entrusted me to do today. These, these little lives you've asked me to care for today, this, this, this job you've asked me to perform today, these people that you've asked me to love and to care for today. And so God, come Holy Spirit, show me how you are at work, at my work, so that I can join you. Show me, Lord, 
as I go and show clients homes today, as I go and, 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 and manage the books today, as I go and write today, as I go and teach today, show me what you're up to and help me join you in it. That's the opposite of presumption. Instead of saying, we're going to do it, neither are we trying to slide to some other side of passiveness, but we end up saying, okay, God, you're the God who called us to work. Did you know that work was a pre-fall call? Well, that's kind of bad news, right? You're like, no, work is the result of the fall, Glenn. It is absolutely not. Prior to the fall, God gives Adam and Eve a job, an assignment. I want you to cultivate this. I want you to tend to this. I want you to watch over this. And in Christ, that work gets renewed. That calling gets restored. Romans 8, 28 And T. Wright's translation goes like this. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good. And he's revised this to add this word with, instead of for, with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, some of you memorize Romans 8.28. And probably how you memorized it goes something like this. All things work together for good. Right? Listen. It doesn't take a lot of life experience to know that things just don't work themselves out for good. They don't. It's like what Pastor Jason was saying earlier. Human history doesn't just sort itself out. No, it's not that all things work together for good. It's that in all things, God works all things. It's God who's at work. Put that scripture up again if you would. It's that God works all things together. God works all things together for good and with those who love him. Friends, the good news here is that if you're thinking, well, does God not like my ambition or does God not like my my desire to work? No, he does. In fact, God has bigger ambitions for the world than you do. God has better plans for this world than you do. The issue is, will we surrender to him and say, God, draw me up into your purpose. Draw me up into your plans. Yesterday, uh, my parents celebrated their first 4th of July as American citizens. And uh, <laughs> they, they moved here seven years ago, the green cards, and last year it was all formalized, the citizenship process. And it, was a, it was an interesting thing as I was reflecting on the message today because I thought their story is not the story of immigrants coming to America to make a better life. There's nothing wrong with that story. It's just that that's not their story. Their story was of moving our family here in 1988 so they could go to Bible college because this is what the Lord was saying to do. On Father's Day weekend, I went out for lunch with my dad and I was asking him more about that season of life because he was about my age now when they made that decision. I was like, Dad, like that had to be crazy. Like, how do you... Like, quit your job and move the whole family, like, across the world. I mean, as a kid, it was like, awesome, we're going to America. But also, how were you not freaking out? And he's like, I, you know, it's just, we're, we're just trying to trust the Lord. We're just trying to follow the Lord. And I have to admit, Dad, that sometimes those answers are difficult for me. Because <laughs> I want to know all the steps. I want to know how it all connects. But I'm inspired by that way. It's very much like what the book of Hebrews says about Abraham, that he left his father's house not sure of where he was going. 
Friends, the life of faith that God calls us into is not a life in which we are in control. It's not a life in which we can script things out and map things out and say, God, if you want to just give a little kiss of approval, that's great, but if not, I got this. The life of faith is where we say, God, take all of me, every part, my plans, my talents, my gifts, my future, my fears, my dreams, my longings, take it all, and I'm going to trust that you actually have more good in mind than I do for myself. I'm gonna trust that you're a better shepherd than I could be for my own life. I'm gonna trust that every good gift comes from the Father above. I'm going to trust not to some empty fate or some distant deity, but actually the personal covenant-keeping God named Yahweh who never fails. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. It's impossible, truly, to walk this way. This whole series is called Walk This Way, and each week we keep, we keep coming up to the edge of it and saying, yeah, I can't really do that. <laughs> we can only walk this way because Jesus walked this way, because Jesus opened up the way. Think of Jesus entering into this fragile and beautiful world in which nothing is a given, but every good thing is a gift. Jesus entering into this world, not saving from afar. Jesus wrestling in agony in the garden of Gethsemane, praying, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If the Lord wills. Friends, I'm not here promising you prosperity and success and health and wealth and happiness. I'm promising you the life of Jesus Christ. The life that is found in saying, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus who held nothing back. Jesus who gave everything and in doing so reversed the curse of Eden. If Eden was the place where we just wanted to take and take so that we could be in charge and be godlike and be in control, then Calvary is the place where Jesus, the second Adam, comes and gives and gives and gives and gives. And so the curse is broken. As we come to the table tonight, would you stand together? We come to this moment living out, reenacting every week the emptying of our hands, confessing our sin of omission and saying to God, I, I, I neither want to be presumptuous nor passive. Instead, I want to participate in the work of God in the world. So would you take a moment right where you are and open up your hands. Pastor Jason's gonna come and lead us into confession and our approach to the Lord's table. But just take a, a few seconds here, pause. And let the Holy Spirit bring his loving searchlight into your heart. Just say, man, I, I've tried to be in control here. I've tried to act like I know. It hasn't really worked. 
And I want to let go of that. And I want to turn my life over to the Father. Turn my life over to the Son who gave himself for me. Turn my life over to the Holy Spirit who alone gives life.